Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Yes, I am back. Thanks to Chad Benson and Rich McFadden for filling in for me. And Jim, also thanks to you for all the extra work that you did while I was out last week. It was an excellent week uh, down at the beach uh, along the uh, South Carolina shore. It's an area that you know well. And uh, Jim, I'm happy to say that I only had to... uh, go to one or two extra gas stations at one stop on the way down, uh, uh, making sure we had enough fuel to, to get down there. Otherwise, uh, very smooth, uh, excellent weather. Uh, I'm always, uh, I always get a kick out of uh, the drive down in certain ways. Of course, Virginia is the Purple Heart State, and then you go to North Carolina, and it's the friendliest military state in the country. So uh, there's a little bit of rivalry there. You get a little bit further into North Carolina, you can stop at the Ava Gardner Museum. Uh, then, of course, you have South of the Border and some delightfully politically incorrect signs as you approach. Uh, and then I think the highlight, though, Jim, of the trip down is when you get uh, just a few miles into South Carolina and you hit the Ben Bernanke interchange. Uh, at, uh, and of course, uh, as you pass through there, you feel like spending a ton of money bailing out banks and insurance companies. So uh, it's, it's uh, great. Right, you know why the Ben Bernanke interchange is there? <laughs> why? Because teenage Ben Bernanke, sounds like I'm doing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles column. Uh, teenage Ben Bernanke worked at South of the Border. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so you either was a burger flipper or, you know, working one of the tchotchke and gift shops or whatever it is. But I always, I always saw that and I'm like, oh, I know where that's from. So, yes. So. Ah. Ben Bernanke, at one point, he was a hardworking slob just like the rest of us. <laughs> Interesting to fill in the details. How about that? Okay. Well, and then, of course, uh, for a lot of folks, at least those who love golf, uh, the weekend wrapped up with uh, Phil Mickelson becoming the oldest major champion ever. Uh, Phil's one of the most popular uh, golfers, certainly of the modern era, perhaps since Jack and and Arnie back in the day. And and Jim, as the throngs mobbed him, and I don't think that's uh, too strong of a term, as he walked up 18 to... uh, finish out his routine two-putt for the, for the PGA Championship, uh, the, the thought just uh, went through my mind. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure the restrictions are done in the minds of a lot of people, certainly at that golf course. Uh, quite, a, quite a sight, not only of Phil winning, but also a very uh, normal and very close quarters scene there at the tournament. It is. And uh, Greg, I'm going to note one of the things I paid a little more attention. I don't want you to pay a ton of attention to golf, but uh, every year right after the Masters, they have the Heritage Tournament in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, the famous Sea Pines Lighthouse and all that stuff. This year's event was just up the coast a little bit uh, at Kiowa Island. And uh, my understanding is that later this year, the Palmetto Championship at Congaree will occur. This is because they're having troubles with the uh, they can't do the usual Canadian Open because of travel restrictions going back and forth between the United States and Canada. So this year, this will have three PGA events in the state of South Carolina. I believe this is all part of a long-in-the-works plot by South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster to move the entire PGA Tour entirely to the state of South Carolina. And uh, <laughs> People thought it would never occur, but he's got three in one year at one point. So he's, he's making progress. Pretty good. Pretty good. And when you can get a ton of fans there, that's good for the economy, too. So uh, and hopefully some job creation. But uh, anyway, uh, let's get into our three martinis for the day. Sad to say I'm not coming back to a good martini, but uh, you're you're dealt with the stories that you're dealt with. And uh, Jim, let's talk about this interesting trend, particularly on the left, of shaming people who think shoplifting is a bad thing. 
The New York Times recently had a story about stores going out of business, particularly in San Francisco, because of rampant shoplifting. Uh, Walgreens says petty theft in the city has gotten so out of control that it had to close 17 of its stores. CVS has told its employees there not to intervene because the thieves so often attack them, calling San Francisco one of the epicenters of organized retail crime. And so the people of San Francisco are furious, not at the shoplifters who are stealing the stuff and then reselling it on the streets. They're mad at Walgreens because, you know, they're supposedly a multi-billion dollar company, which of course they are. And so the fact that they're closing stores because people are constantly shoplifting and they can't turn a profit at that location makes Walgreens the bad guy. Uh, Errol Lewis is a New York City-based reporter. Uh, He not only uh, pointed that out from the New York Times story, he also says, worth noting that several candidates for Manhattan DA and for New York City mayor say that shoplifting should not be prosecuted because that's quote-unquote criminalizing poverty. Pretty sure that's exactly the opposite of how Rudy Giuliani cleaned up New York City. But the coup de grace here, uh, Jim, is uh, from Cynthia Nixon, former uh, star of Sex in the City, uh, former challenger to uh, Andrew Cuomo in the 2018 New York uh, Democratic gubernatorial primary, and somehow... She's the less rational of the two uh, uh, types on Twitter. The CVS on my corner has started locking up basic items like clothing detergent. As so many families can't make ends meet right now, I can't imagine thinking that the way to solve the problem of people stealing basic necessities out of desperation is to prosecute them. Uh, We can probably argue about whether that's why they're being stolen. We saw plenty of uh, people uh, doing likewise uh, during the riots last year. But uh, what do you make of the uh, idea now that shoplifting? Ah, just let it go. These people are desperate. And if you actually want to crack down on it, you're a heartless individual. A lot of our problems in society, Greg, stem from an inability to see past that first step and the second and third degree consequences of a particular course of action. Because let's say, let's you know. By the way, it's interesting how you know when you and I were growing up, shoplifting was generally seen as a teenage crime. It was not seen as something that grownups did, um, and it was generally seen as you know stealing candy bars or something that was entirely not done out of desperation or out of economic necessities. It was done out of wanting something and not wanting to pay for it. I you know would really love to see how uh, the uh, Cynthia Nixon came to this conclusion that it's being done out of desperation. Do we know this? How many people, like we get, because we no longer are arresting shoplifting, because we're no longer encountering and detaining the people who are caught shoplifting. We don't know whether they're doing this because they really are at, you know, deeply impoverished and desperate. They're just trying to steal soap and deodorant and basics of life. Uh, or whether they're, as you said, you know, they're buying it to resell it on the street. And unless we actually bother to intervene, we're never going to know whether they're doing this out of that. But the other thing is that you know, we have public assistance. We have fairly generous public assistance, not even mentioning the expanded unemployment benefits that are in place right now. We also have private charities. No one wants to see desperate people going without deodorant and going without other necessities of life. If people had said there are you know, people who are really struggling as the, uh, the after effects of the pandemic and its economic consequences uh, uh, wash through our society. Uh, we're we're you know, largely on the road to recovery. We still got a ways to go. Yeah, people need deodorant. People need soap. People need basics of life. Would you? Lots of people, myself included, would be more than happy to get you know to donate a couple bars of soap or to do, uh, donate a thing of, of deodorant or something like that. When you're stealing, 
you know, oh, I'm stealing because I have to. I have no other choice. No, no, no. That is a conscious choice on your part. And there has been this, if you say, okay, well, we're just not going to prosecute it. Like it's entirely understandable. It's CVS, Walgreens, these kinds of stores would say to the empl their employees, don't confront the shoplifter. Your life isn't worth this. You're, you don't want you getting hurt. You know, these people are not getting paid a ton of money. They're not security guards. They're not trained. You don't necessarily want them encountering someone who may be trying to steal something. That said, it's hard, you know, you can variously understand why CVS and Walgreens and companies like that might be reluctant and start wondering, like, do, hey, do we want to keep a store open in this area? Because if we have to hire a security guard, we have to have cameras, we have to have more things, we have to have someone separate from our cashiers who are there to confront shoplifters. Well, now all of a sudden you've got a real problem. And eventually the CVSs and Walgreens are going to say, you know what, if we keep losing, you know, um, you might be saying, oh, it's just a, th a thing of deodorant. Yes, but the problem is what happens when everybody else has the exact same attitude. And yes, that stick of deodorant isn't cost a lot of money, but the CVS portion of that profit isn't particularly high. And let's point out that the share of that profit that, of the uh, uh, store income that ends up going to the, the, this, uh, the person behind the, the register isn't particularly high. So it only takes a little bit of that for that to eat into the profit margin. And eventually the CVSs and Walgreens, the world will say, you know what? We don't need a store there. Or we only want to open a store to play in a neighborhood where it's going to make a profit. We're not operating the CVS charity. We're not operating the Walgreens charity. There are other institutions that do that in our society. We're going to shut down this store and we'll open up another store in a neighborhood or in a different community where we don't have high rates of shoplifting. And then all of a sudden, this community, you know, who, who gets hurt the most? The people in the neighborhood who are dependent upon that particular store for stuff. Um, it's an inability to see past the nose and two orders of consequence. Of course, you have to enforce these rules. Now, does it mean that, you know, if somebody cries poverty, you throw the book at them? Not necessarily, but you definitely do enough of an action to prove, to act as a deterrent against doing it again, because, you know, radio constant shoplifting can become an issue large enough to the CVSs and Walgreens of the world say, you know what, to hell with this. We don't need to have a store in this neighborhood. We can make our profits somewhere else. We don't want to have to deal with uh, our poor staffers constantly having to deal with it. But then the staffers end up out of a job and everybody outside of the neighborhood no longer has that place to shop and fill their prescriptions and do things like that. It's amazing. We've talked about uh, the decline of New York City as a result of Bill de Blasio's nearly eight years as as mayor there. Uh, but when you see that uh, Democrats running for district attorney and mayor, if they were to win the nominations, they're going to win the general elections. If you're headed into four more years, potentially, with a mayor and a prosecutor who are going to look the other way on shoplifting and who knows what other minor crimes... What optimism do you have for your neighborhood, for your business uh, in New York City going forward and perhaps in other major urban areas if this same attitude persists? Yeah, I mean, in the end, this becomes a do, you know, everybody who can afford to get out will get out because there simply will. It's not just the problems in, in the community because lots of communities have lots of problems. It's the steadfast refusal <laughs> to address the problems and the insistence that something that is a problem, i.e. shoplifting, isn't really a problem and that it's up to, you know, CVS and Walgreens to eat the costs of that every single time. All right. Well, let's talk about something happier than that. And that's my pillow. We've talked recently about the towels and the sheets and the slippers, all of which are extremely good. But today let's talk about the actual pillows. Uh, I got a MyPillow as a gift long before uh, MyPillow was a sponsor, and I have used MyPillow ever since. Uh, I usually don't travel with it. Uh, didn't travel with it uh, this last week to the beach, and the pillow's okay, but it wasn't nearly as good as uh, the MyPillow, and uh, if I'm ever at a hotel, uh, definitely I can tell the difference as well. Uh, it's fluffy. It holds its shape. Uh, just... 
cradles the head and the neck in the right position and it gives me excellent sleep. So uh, now you can refresh the pillows of every room because the premium my pillow is at its lowest price ever. And now for a limited time, you can get a queen size premium my pillow for just $29.98. A king pillow is just $5 more. Now the premium pillows never go flat and they give you the best night's sleep every night. They're made right here in the United States, and they have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. So go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener's square, enter the promo code MARTINI, or call 800-874-0104. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets and the new My Slippers. Get your premium MyPillow today for only $29.98, but only with our promo code MARTINI. Call 800-874-0104 or visit MyPillow.com today. All right, Jim, let's talk about our next bad martini, or maybe it's crazy. Uh, This is the story of the Belarusian journalist who is now in Belarusian custody. Uh, For those who have followed along, we haven't talked about this much, if at all, on Three Martini Lunch, but uh, Alexander Lukashenko is the the head of Belarus, and he's not exactly someone who's a friend of uh, freedom and democracy. He's got an iron grip on power, and despite uh, massive protests there, not that long ago, uh, he stays in power largely because uh, he doesn't want to leave and Putin doesn't want him to leave either. And so what happened over the weekend is that a MiG-29 was sent to intercept a commercial airliner in order to arrest a blogger slash journalist under the false pretense that there had been a bomb threat made against the Ryanair jet. And so the MiG was there to safely bring uh, the jet down. So the uh, insane part of this is that uh, the Russians are now uh, explaining how everything that was done here is fine. Sergei Lavrov, longtime foreign minister for the Russians, told journalists that Belarus had treated the incident with an, quote, absolutely reasonable approach. Quote, a representative of the Belarusian foreign ministry uh, stressed the readiness of the Belarusian authorities to act on the issue in a transparent manner and to follow all international rules, he said at a press conference. I think this is an absolutely reasonable approach, and he called on the global community to soberly assess the situation. So... Uh, Jim, given what we know of the Putin government's uh, treatment of journalists and what they do with them once they're in custody, or just maybe killing them with poison in other ways without actually having them in custody, uh, I'm not sure Sergei Lavrov is the voice uh, or this Russian government is the voice we want to tell us to calm down here. You know, dear listeners, before we get into the, the meat of my answer, I want to make the observation. Before we started taping, I would have bet a significant amount of money that it was pronounced Belarusian and not Belarusian. No, no, I was all ready to make fun of Greg. I was all ready. And then I looked it up and lo and behold, Belarusian is the pronounce is the correct pronunciation. So kudos to Greg. And I would have lost a lot of money if I'd gone gambling on that. Um, so the, yeah, the, the Lavrov statement is a one of several crazy aspects of this. Um, I think the fact that uh, they, they sounds like Belarusian agents uh, basically made the IED or bomb threat themselves, used that as an excuse to force it back to land at the uh, Belarusian capital of Minsk um, instead of continuing on to it. But keep in mind, this is a Ryanair is a Irish airline. It's kind of like their, um, I don't want to say low cost, low cost, you know, uh, European vacation type airline. 
Um, and this was a de facto hijacking. There were Belarusian agents on the plane. They were able to use it before it, before it was able to leave Belarusian airspace. Uh, and there was no reason for it to divert to Minsk. Uh, that basically they, you know, they were able to say, look, you better land in Minsk. We know what's going to happen with this bomb. Now, what I love is the Belarusian military sending that MiG up there, because here's the thing. There's a bomb on the plane. What do you think the MiG is going to do? <laughs> is it going to shoot the bomb off the plane or something? It's going to aim one perfect shot right into the luggage hold or something like that? Clearly, this was an effort by the Belarusian government to force the plane down, get their guy arrested, and uh, to hell with everything. This is effectively a hijacking. This is, you know... Now, Belarus does not make a lot of actions without checking with Russia first. They are a pretty darn strong ally. The, uh, the authoritarian leader of, of Belarus is good buddies with Vladimir Putin. I don't know if you can say that this is a Russian uh, action, but I think it's safe to say that this was an action that fully occurred with the approval of the Russian government because Belarus would not cross Russia. Uh, this is, also, as we said, a state-directed hijacking. Now, as I mentioned in today's Morning Jolt newsletter, uh, our current Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said that it was a forced diversion. And it was, it was, look, Blinken's statement was plenty angry. Forced diversion doesn't strongly as quite as strong as hijacking, but fine. We'll see what happens here. Um, we've had a lot of gripe. It appeared during the Trump years, we we're going to have this broad bipartisan consensus against Russia and this broad bipartisan consensus that, you know, Trump was playing footsie with Putin and we kept saying, you know, such nice things about him. He just didn't seem to grasp or didn't want to grasp the kind of threat that Vladimir Putin represented to, uh, to NATO, to the United States, and to, you know, Western European interests. And there was this, okay, we're right, this is a new era. We're going to get tough with these guys. We're going to you know no backing down. Well, last week while you were gone, Greg, we talked about the contrast between Biden's handling of the Keystone XL pipeline and then the Biden's response to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline connecting Russia and Germany and how Biden said it was an absolutely terrible deal for uh, Europe that jeopardizes their energy independence. But OK, we'll let you go along with it. Um, kind of a, a real wimping out on that issue. Yeah, we've imposed a bunch of sanctions on Russian officials. You may have noticed that this hasn't really changed Russians, Russia's behavior very much because you know, Russia's economy is largely built to be self-sufficient. They don't, you know, these basically means these Russian officials won't be able to vacation in the United States or Western Europe, and they weren't planning on doing that in the first place. We can, you know, we can, right now, there's only a limited amount of um, leverage that our sanctions can get against these, these uh, Russian officials. Now you've got the fact that it is no longer safe for Western airliners to fly over Belarusian, air, Belarusian airspace because there's always a chance that if you've got somebody on board that the Belarusian government wants, you may get a MIG on your tail saying, oh, we heard there's a bomb on your plane. You'd better land at our airport and let our agents go inspect everything. Oh, by the way, we might just take off one of your passengers because we've, you know, we've gotten a warrant for this guy. Um, that is not, that is a complete violation of international law. And the big question is, what is the Biden administration going to do about it? I'd love to see uh, a really tough stance, but I'm not really uh, counting on it. Now, uh, and we need something probably beyond a uh, strongly worded statement, but uh, birds of a feather, man. Uh, Putin and now Lukashenko uh, with some tactics against uh, writers they don't like. Uh, so remember when... Uh, politicians criticize your work or maybe insult you here in the United States, it could be a, could be a lot worse. And it is a lot worse than a lot of other places in the world. Uh, all right, let's talk about another fine sponsor. And that is Ernest. Look, it's time to break out of that student debt cycle. And while interest rates are ticking up a little bit due to inflation, they're still pretty low historically, and it's still a really good time to finance your student loan. So say goodbye to stressful student loan payments and take charge of your future with Ernest. 
Earnest offers low rate student loan refinancing and you can check your rate risk-free in just two minutes. With Earnest, you get radically flexible payments and you can pick your loan term. By refinancing, you can reduce your loan term, save money, or combine multiple loans into a simple monthly payment. And if you have questions, you can even talk to a real live human at Earnest for help. Now, isn't it time you stop feeling overwhelmed by your student debt? Right now, Ernest is giving Three Martini Lunch listeners a $100 bonus. Refinance your student loans at earnest.com slash martini. Terms and conditions apply. Once again, you get a $100 cash bonus when you visit earnest.com slash martini to refinance your student loan. It's not available in all states. And remember that terms and conditions do apply. All right, Jim, let's move to our third martini. This one's definitely a crazy. And we're once again talking about Andrew Cuomo. You and Chad definitely talked about the Cuomo brothers last week. But uh, look, it's 2021 and 2022 is an election year in New York. And people got to make some decisions about uh, if they're going to run, what they're going to run for. And Andrew Cuomo, if he decides to run, will be gunning for a fourth term. It's that Number of term that his father did not win in 1994 when he was upset by George Pataki. But uh, Siena has done some polling here. And while it appears that Cuomo is not the Democrats' best candidate for governor in 2022, uh, if he ends up being the nominee, it looks like New York State is largely going to be fine with that. This is from Politico. Uh, they point out that New York State Attorney General Tish James, who would also be a horrible governor, by the way, did better than Cuomo in a hypothetical gubernatorial matchup against an unnamed Republican opponent. And Jim, that's usually the Republican that does the best is the unnamed generic opponent who doesn't have a lot of negatives. Uh, Tish- you know, you know, Greg, I haven't heard from Tim Pawlenty in a while. <laughs> Has he moved to New York? I guess I guess I he don't could. think so. Yeah. <laughs> it don't come much more generic than that. I, we love you, Governor. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, Tish James defeats an unnamed Republican, or at least leads, uh, 46 to 29, a 17-point margin. Uh, Cuomo against an unnamed generic Republican, it's 48 to 38. That's a 10-point lead. Uh, They did not do a uh, head-to-head James versus Cuomo in a primary, which would be by far the most interesting uh, question to New York voters, but for some reason they didn't ask that one. But uh, while Siena did not ask that, it did ask whether voters want Cuomo to win a fourth term. And among Democrats, this is Democrats only, they back that idea by a margin of 56 to 33. Jim, in my wildest dreams, I assumed he'd just take this pile of scandals and and just maybe not run again. Not only is he probably going to run again, he's probably going to be the nominee and he's probably going to win re-election by a wide margin. I realize with the uh, the exodus that's happening from New York, it's only going to get bluer. But my goodness, don't these people have any standards? No, they don't. <laughs> have a good week, everybody. No. Um... <laughs> So I'll just make one or two observations because my my colleagues uh, who, who do the editor's podcast, easily the, the second best podcast you'll find around here, um, had a similar discussion when, you know, when these numbers came out or just a discussion about when, what it would take to get New York Democrats to really turn against Andrew Cuomo. Um, yesterday, the, the end of the week morning jolt last week was about the Cuomo brothers and the fact that CNN's Chris Cuomo had joined these strategy conference calls on how to defend Andrew Cuomo. And um, 
you know, it was a recognition that like, look, you don't have to dislike Andrew Cuomo because he put people who were infected with COVID-19 back into nursing homes. Although that was a really bad decision. You don't have to dislike him because of that decision and the cover-up, although that's pretty darn bad. You don't have to, you know, mention the fact that they did that and the cover-up. And they said they expected a Department of Justice investigation if they'd given the real numbers to the federal government. You don't have to do it for the now nine sexual harassment allegations against uh, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, I believe that's one more than the Al Franken standard. The first seven are free, but then in the eighth one, you have to face consequences. He's out now up to nine. Um, the bullying and intimidation, the fact that his uh, vaccine coordinator was calling up county officials and kind of measuring their loyalty to Cuomo. Like, I just went down all the list and almost every conceivable scandal you can think of and certainly every scandal that's been thrown at uh, Ron DeSantis down in Florida, Andrew Cuomo has done. Now, you don't, yeah, you know, look, if you're a Democrat, I'd like to think you'd like something better in the governor's mansion in New York State, up in Albany. I, I know you've had a lot of scandals. I know you're used to, to corruption. And what's fascinating is you see Democrats lamenting of Republicans. When are those Republicans going to hold Donald Trump accountable? When are they going to stand up to him? When are they going to say enough is enough? And I agree with a lot of that. I think there is a bunch of sucking up to Donald Trump. I think there is a bunch of people who look the other way and excuse ridiculous comments and, you know, nonsense claims about bamboo in the paper in the Chinese ballots and all that kind of stuff. But the irony is that by and large, Democrats do the exact same thing about Andrew Cuomo. And the bizarre thing is that, you know, we saw, you and I can point here in Virginia, similar situation with Ralph Northam, the yearbook photo, Ralph Northam is either wearing a Klan hood or blackface. There really isn't a good option there. And the, you know, he admitted he was in the picture and then he began to realize what the political consequences were going to be. And then he said, oh, wait, I just remembered it wasn't me in the picture. I falsely confessed to this, you know, uh, career ending scandal. There has been the negative polarization has gotten so intense in our culture that the attitude amongst a whole bunch of people in politics who really ought to know better is that if I hold my guy accountable and say, you should step down, this is not acceptable. I don't care that you've been agreeing with me on a bunch of issues. Your behavior is terrible and represents an abuse of power. It's too much to ask. They decide, no, I'm not gonna do that. I don't know whether they're afraid if they, you know, it's like if you come with the king, you best not miss. And that if there's an effort to impeach Cuomo and he doesn't survive, he's gonna go on the war path against everybody who voted for it. So I don't know. It, it's one of those things where you can't you, you cannot expect the other side to unilaterally disarm. There is a belief that holding your guys accountable for their bad behavior is a weakness unless you other guys are willing to do it too. Somebody's going to have to be the bigger person and make that first step. And there are a bunch of Democrats who feel like, oh, we look like fools because we held Al Franken accountable. Now, Al Franken was apparently, according to these women, grabbing women's tushes as they were taking pictures. Right. That's 12. That's not even 12 year old behavior. I'd like to think your 12-year-old would behave better than this. But there's this attitude of, oh, we screwed up by holding him accountable. Now, here's the thing. Minnesota Senator Tina Smith gives you all the votes that Al Franken did, and she doesn't squeeze anybody's butt, as far as we know, right? She, she, so you got all the same positions, all the same votes. She votes to make Chuck Schumer the uh, Senate Majority Leader, and you get, but none of the scandal stuff. And yet somehow Democrats have convinced themselves Tina Smith for Al Franken was a bad trade. Republicans have similar dynamics with their scandal-ridden figures. Every time somebody lets off, you know, you know, averts their gaze from the scandalous behavior of one of their guys, the other side says, oh, that's how the game's going to be played? Fine. We're never holding any of our people accountable. And that's where we are. And it doesn't look like it's likely to change. I, I, 
what other things I was the, the kind of the closing or the opening thought of um, the the newsletter on Friday, Greg, was just the observation. Like a lot of things have been shocking in the last eighteen months or so, but I think one that has to be you know somewhere in that top five has to be that out of all the governors that could have been turning to celebrated by the media as the hero of the pandemic, the media picked Cuomo. And out of all 50 governors in the country, you can make a very strong argument that he is the absolute worst. And yes, I know there's a lot of competition. I, I hear you, Michiganders. I know you don't like Gretchen Whitmer. I hear you, Californians. I know you don't like Gavin Newsom. I know there's a whole bunch of people. Phil Murphy. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Ralph Norton. You know, look, I'm from Virginia. I, I think I had a real strong contender in that contest. But <laughs> you're the sheer, for sheer breadth and depth of scandals, I think Andrew Cuomo might take it and that's an astounding thing of just how much the media, like by random chance, they would not have ended up picking this one. The media is now a, like, it's basically an anti-accountability structure that celebrates the folks who need celebration the least and deserve celebration the least and need accountability the most. And with, you know, frightfully few exceptions, they don't hold uh, someone like Cuomo accountable. Yeah, the media is far more committed to narrative than facts and truth these days. And it's uh, probably been that way for a while, but it's uh, even more obvious now. So maybe we need like a March Madness style bracket of who's the most horrible governor uh, in America. There could be some uh, fun competitions there. But uh, Andrew Cuomo, just the, the full pile of horribles. Uh, it's that That's going to be hard to top, especially when you factor in uh, the amount of positive coverage he got and uh, the amount of self-promotion he did. It's just... Just incredible. Uh, Jim, I spent zero seconds thinking about Andrew Cuomo while I was on vacation, so uh, it's kind of unfortunate that I have to come back to that. Reality does beckon. So here we are, and uh, we look forward to doing this again tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're very grateful for those five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Also, get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday, and please join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.